Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. I've just been at my youngest son, Torrance's fifth birthday party. So happy birthday once again, son. But there'll be no more happy birthdays for little Shukri Abdi, to whom I'm dedicating this show tonight. Shukri Abdi was a 12-year-old schoolgirl, a Somali refugee girl living in Bury in Greater Manchester. Late last month, she was found drowned in the river Irwell. She was dressed from head to toe in traditional Islamic garb, wearing a hijab, wearing long clothes. She couldn't swim. She had a fear of water. The police have concluded that it was entirely accidental. But I don't believe that that is true. Shukri, like many children of all backgrounds, was being mercilessly bullied in her school. It is much more likely to me, and more importantly, to her family and the community from whence she comes. It's not by any means an open and shut case. And I'm appealing to the Honourable Mayor of Greater Manchester, the Honourable, Right Honourable Andy Burnham, my former parliamentary colleague, to reopen this case because some of us believe that that's not how a girl terrified of water who can't swim would ordinarily meet her demise at the age of 12 years. It's much more likely that she was somehow coerced into that water. It's much more likely that she ran into that water because she was terrified about what would happen to her if she didn't. It's even possible that she was pushed into this water. And the Greater Manchester Police, for whom in ordinary times I have the highest respect, and I certainly have the highest respect for the Mayor of Greater Manchester, it's even possible that little Shukri Abdi was effectively lynched. That's a strong word, and I use it reluctantly. But it's certainly what her family and her community fear may have happened to her. This was no ordinary drowning, we believe. And we demand that the case is properly investigated. Of course, there will be no more happy birthdays for all kinds of children around the world. No more happy birthdays from the children still being killed in Yemen. And a shout out to the young man from Yemen I met on the way to the studio this evening, lamenting to me what's happening to his country and its people at the hands of a Western Saudi war that has been going on now year after year after year, laying to waste the country and the people 
of the poorest country in the Middle East. In fact, one of the poorest countries on the earth. Where cholera stalks the land, where disease, malnutrition and famine stalk the land. And that's before you start thinking about the rockets and the bombs made by oh so respectable weapons manufacturers here in the West, sold to the Saudi Air Force. Who knew the Saudis had an air force so powerful it could bomb and rocket year after year after year? Certainly not the children in Gaza. They didn't know that Saudi Arabia had such a powerful air force. Certainly it never once even thought of coming to their aid. I mention that because Mr. Netanyahu has just said that he is preparing for a major operation in the Gaza Strip and the people in Gaza and more and more people around the world know what he means by major operation. No more happy birthdays for the children in the Donbass being shelled by the forces of the coup government in Kiev. No more happy birthdays for the children still being killed by the head-chopping takfiris backed by Western countries trying to destroy Syria, trying to tear it apart, trying to rip it into ribbons of sectarian hatred and antipathy. No more happy birthday for poor children everywhere who don't know where their next meal is coming from. It's a grotesquely unfair and unjust world. That is for sure. No more happy birthdays for many suffering children all around the world. And I wanted to say that right up top because it was almost, might yet be no more happy birthdays for the children of Iran and the surrounding region maybe very much further wide than that. Because Donald Trump, as we talked about last week, was 10 minutes away from a major military offensive against the Republic of Iran. A major offensive that would have been instantly joined, we now know because they have told us, by Mr. Netanyahu's Israel, who might have to leave the people of Gaza alone, for a few days while they joined an American attack on Iran. From Saudi Arabia, the rockets and the jets would have come. And we now know from Jeremy Hunt, Britain's foreign secretary and putative prime minister, that Britain would join it too. Imagine. Iran, of course, is not some tin pot, broken-backed tyranny with no ability to fight back, the Iranian people would be entirely united in resisting an American, Israeli, Saudi and British attack upon their country. Now Donald Trump wisely, and I take my hat off to him for doing so, called off that strike at the last minute, much to the disappointment of some of his closest friends in the region. But it's all flared up again. And who lit the matches? The very same Jeremy Hunt. The very same British government that once occupied all of Iran and stole its wealth, that played a decisive role along with the United States of America in overthrowing democracy in Iran 
1953. Perfidious Albion was up to its nefarious designs again off the coast of Gibraltar this week. There was an oil tanker, state-owned, on its way to deliver oil duly paid for to the Syrian Arab Republic. It necessarily needed to sail through the Mediterranean, so it turned the corner at Gibraltar, and it was, I can only say this in this way, there's no nice way to put this. It was subjected to an act of international piracy by the brave Royal Marines. They are brave. I almost was one of them. Brave and highly talented soldiers. But there was nothing brave about what they did off Gibraltar this week. You don't need to be brave to storm as the British media put it, an unarmed oil tanker. No bravery required. But they stormed it. Moreover, according to the government of Spain, they did so in Spanish territorial waters. Just a sidebar, Spain is a member of the European Union, a rather important one. It has a vote in the Council of Ministers. It has a veto vote in the Council of Ministers. Britain is currently trying to leave the European Union, currently trying to negotiate a satisfactory deal acceptable to both sides to govern the terms of that withdrawal from the European Union. I wouldn't look forward to being a British minister asking a favour from the government of Spain after such a flagrant act of piracy in their territorial waters. We could discuss another time the frankly ruritarian, ludicrous idea that Gibraltar is Britain. It's a rock in Spain for God's sake. It's a rock attached to Spain, for God's sake. But we'll discuss that another time. Why didn't Donald Trump and John Bolton ask the Spanish government to board that oil tanker? Because the Spanish government would have said no. That's why the Spanish government would have said, we don't have oil sanctions against Iran. We don't even have oil sanctions against Syria. There is no legal, lawful basis at all for storming an Iranian oil tanker on its way to Syria. In any case, the Spanish government would have said, we don't recognize American sanctions on Iran. We reject the destruction of the Iran nuclear deal by Donald Trump. We don't want war with Iran, so why should we commit an act of war against Iran by storming its legitimate oil tanker going about its lawful business? That's what the Spanish government would have said. That's what any European government would have said, any except the British government, of course.
Trump and Bolton asked the British government because they knew that this British government, like British governments before it, follows the United States in the way that the rat follows the elephant seeking to profit from its droppings. They knew that Britain is the tail of the American dog and when Trump and Bolton told it to act, that it would immediately do so. I utterly reject the use of our brave servicemen for such an ignoble, unlawful, illegal practice as storming other people's vessels with no legal basis and no political sense whatsoever. Because I tell you something, just in case you haven't worked it out yet, the Iranians will retaliate. Iran is not a punch bag. It's not Iraq in 2003. Iran will retaliate. Wouldn't you, if you were Iran? If you were a citizen of Iran, wouldn't you be demanding that your government retaliate? In fact, they'd be pushing at an open door. Because, you see, as a man in Manchester said to me the other day, an Iranian man who runs a restaurant, these people, he said, they don't know anything about us. He mentioned the religion, the predominant religion in Iran, Shiism, Shiites. He said they don't know anything about us, Shiites. We are happy to die. We are happy to die for our country and in defense of our faith. You tell us we're going to kill you, we say, please kill me. Send me to paradise. The Iranians are ready, ready to fight back. And who are they going to fight back against now? Well, Britain just got itself added right near the top of the list. So what happens next? If Iran seizes a British tanker, as it could do just like that, what's going to happen then? Then we'll be in the middle of a huge international crisis. Maybe that's what they wanted, of course. Maybe they're looking for an excuse to start a shooting war against Iran. If they are, they don't know that they'll be making the biggest mistake in history, that they'll be opening the gates of hell. But you should know, if you're watching this and listening to this, don't forget that I told you all of this in the run-up to the war with Iraq, which has never ended. In fact, as George Orwell says, the war is not supposed to be won. The war is supposed to go on forever. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Now, Caleb Mopan is on the line, as I said earlier. He's my favorite American correspondent. I met him once. He called me a legend. I called him one. We both love each other. And Caleb will be with us uh, through the weeks and months between now and the picking of a Democratic Party challenger and, of course, the U.S. presidential election, too. But first, Caleb, welcome to the show. I want to ask you uh, about this oil tanker. It now turns out that the British Army takes its orders from Washington. Don't you know it? It was <coughs> Trump and Bolton who told the British government that they had to board this oil tanker. How was that story played out in the U.S. media? Well, <coughs> you know, the, the amount of bias related to anything related to Iran in the United States is pretty massive. Uh, you almost want to do a double take. And imagine that the shoe was on the other foot. What would be the response of the United States if an American oil tanker had been seized by a foreign country? Uh, the response would obviously be quite a bit of massive outrage and possibly some kind of military action. Um, and, of course, this has then fit in with a narrative that apparently the only reason the Syrian government hasn't collapsed is because of, uh, you know, the support it, it allegedly receives from Iran. Uh, you know, apparently no Syrian would ever not want their country to be overrun by Wahhabi terrorists and extremists. No, no Syrian would ever want to continue religious freedom and elections and such in, in their country. It fits in with a whole narrative about Iran, blaming Iran for all the, all the problems of the Middle East, as if everything would be just fine over there, as if Saudi Arabia is not causing problems, as if Israel is not causing problems. Unfortunately, uh, media bias in the United States related to Iran is rather massive. However, I will say that among Democrats and critics of the Trump administration, there has been a fear um, uh, and, and a, vocal, a vocal fear of going to war. And there has been, you know, uh, surprisingly, uh, in some cases lately it seems like the Democrats are more pro-war than, than the Republicans, but, but many Democrats, you know, spoke up and said they were very, very nervous about the entire situation just like they were nervous about the drone situation and being shot down and the possible 10 minutes away strike, just like they were nervous about the oil tanker accusations. It seems many Democrats are weary of the fact that some forces within the Trump administration seem determined to get us into a war with Iran, and a lot of Democrats seem to realize that that's undesirable. Of course, one of the reasons why Trump pulled back must have been that some wise counsel in his own head or somewhere else <laughs> must have said to him, this could run right up to the presidential election. We could be at war. Sure. And, and Trump, I think, for whatever reason, maybe it's just his own ego, he doesn't want to be the guy. 
you know, Lyndon Johnson was the guy. He did Gulf of Tonkin. He got us into the Vietnam War. And everyone has seen that clip in the United States where he says, I, Lyndon Johnson, will not accept the nomination of my party for another. I mean, it, it was a, a shameful thing to be the guy to get us into the war, right? George W. Bush, you know, despite the fact that he was reelected, is always going to be remembered as the guy who did the Iraq thing. And maybe Trump's ego is just strong enough. He just doesn't want to be the guy. And you have to ask yourself, you know, as somebody who, who you know, observed and reported on the 2016 election, was, would Hillary Clinton have been as reluctant to be the guy as Trump was? You have to ask yourself that question. Um, well, uh, personally, I believe we'd already be at war probably over Syria if she had been the president. But it's screaming out to me, Caleb, that Trump doesn't want to be the guy. He wants to be reelected. I believe his instincts are as he uh, adumbrated them during the actual presidential election campaign against uh, further interventionist wars. That then tells me that the people around him, Bolton, uh, Pompeo, uh, uh, the CIA chief, uh, they're, they're dragging him into this. Well, there are rumors circulating, and I know John Kiraku and others, there are rumors circulating about some kind of disagreement between Trump and Bolton. And there's a lot of people, you know, speculating, where is John Bolton? Why haven't we heard as much from him lately? What's going on? There, there is talk of some kind of disagreement between them. But what you said about Trump campaigning on a platform of being opposed to intervention Really, I mean, it was reiterated. I mean, that was a big part of why he was elected. And we saw that play out at the first Democratic Party debate uh, with Tulsi Gabbard. And Tulsi Gabbard, you know, who's often treated as a, a fringe candidate in, in, in the mainstream media of the United States, was not given anywhere near as much attention and time as the other candidates. Yet she came out as the surprise dark horse uh, winner of the first presidential Democratic debate um, because she, she spoke so strongly against continued U.S. occupation of Afghanistan and continued intervention. And it seems that among both Democrats and Republicans, there is a strong desire to see an end to this constant war and military interventionism around the world. Now, she's got nearly 100,000 individual donors. Uh, she is a dark horse. She's come from virtually nowhere for the mass media anyway. Um, is, is it credible that she can uh, survive the coming primary season? Well, you know, we will just have to see. And, I mean, if you watch, uh, for those, you know, who, who didn't follow the U.S. very closely, we had, had not one night but two nights. The first debate was divided into two evenings because there were so many Democratic candidates. And it was almost like some kind of, uh, you know, you know, you could say it was some kind of bad entertainment, professional wrestling. I mean, everybody was there. Uh, we, we had, you know, all kinds of, we had uh, Marion Williamson, the uh, spiritual guru of Oprah. And she was talking about how she was going to defeat Donald Trump with the power of love. And you had Andrew Yang, uh, who's running on a platform of universal basic income. Um, you, you had all kinds of people there. Uh, I mean, it was every, every different voice, every different little cause you could have heard of was represented. Um, but yet the media seemed to be focusing on four or five major candidates. Um, uh, some of the candidates, uh, Andrew Yang in particular, complained about the fact that the format was set up 
so that when the moderators called on people, uh, somebody else could just jump in. That was how the debates were set up. But yet, other people's microphones were not turned on. Andrew Yang, the candidate who was running on this universal basic income platform, he complained that, this, you know, that he was not able to jump in like the other candidates were. That these are very much made-for-TV debates. Um, and that it seems like we have so many candidates running, um, but yet the focus is on, is on a few front-runners who are being given all the media attention, and it's almost like the rest are almost just background noise. Uh, it, it's not exactly being framed completely fairly uh, in American media. Well, let's turn to the front-runners. Uh, the one that interests me the most, and the one that if I had a vote I'd be casting it for, is Senator Sanders. Um, would you say that he has faltered a little bit. That's certainly how the media has presented it over here. Well, his campaign staff has voiced a great deal of outrage about the fact that the media is almost declaring their, their campaign to be over uh, based on a few polls, whereas there are other polls showing different things, showing him second right behind Joe Biden. Um, and furthermore, um, that it seems like one of the things that seems to be causing so much confusion and, and maybe weakening Sanders is the fact that his platform has been adopted by almost all the other major candidates. They're all calling for Medicare for all now. They're all practically calling for a guaranteed college for Americans now. So is that really a loss if the other candidates are adopting your platform? Um, but, but the Bernie Sanders staff, uh, they, they have voiced outrage about it, and they seem to emphasize the fact that they have a very big network of volunteers, uh, that they are out uh, fundraising themselves from 2016 by very big numbers. They're very confident, um, and, and they feel like the media is just anxious to declare them to be defeated, you know, a year before the election even, even begins, even before the primary votes take place. Very strange. but. Uh, but regardless, um, you know, Sanders seems to have a, a very strong base of support. Uh, polls, some polls are putting him in fourth place now. Other polls are putting him in second place. Uh, but he's up there with Biden. He's up there with uh, Kamala Harris. He's up there with Elizabeth Warren. He's considered one of the front Now, here's my take on those two, uh, Kamala Harris and uh, Joe Biden. It might be a bit unkind, but on this side of the water, we, we, we can be that. Uh, for me, Joe Biden is Hillary Clinton without the lipstick, and Kamala Harris is Hillary Clinton with the lipstick. What's your, what's your response to that? Well, I mean, that's certainly an amusing way of putting it. Uh, Kamala Harris, uh, you know, was the, the top prosecutor in the state of California. And, and she has tried to reframe herself as a progressive, as someone who fought for low-income people, but that record just doesn't match uh, with what actually took place. Um, you know, there's video of her laughing about jailing parents because their children have skipped school and laughing about the fact that she's locking up low-income parents because their children were, were absent from school. There's a clip of her laughing and mocking people protesting the fact that there's money being spent on prisons and uh, the school to prison pipeline um, and, and there's not a funding of education in the United States. That she, as much as she's trying to frame herself as someone who fought for the low-income people and all of that, she has a pretty ugly record as a lock -em up candidate, as someone who uh, enabled California to become the top uh, incarceration state. Um, and, and she's got a lot, a lot to answer for there. Um, 
furthermore, she seems to really emphasize that her criticism of Trump is that he's not warlike enough. Uh, she criticized Trump for his recent negotiations uh, with, with Kim Jong-un and North Korea. She, she attacked that as a photo op. She's, a, she's opposed to making peace with North Korea. She's made that pretty clear. Uh, she's opposed to any, any, any effort to reconcile with Russia. Um, and she seems to, to very much uh, represent uh, the forces that, that you know, Hillary Clinton represented, which seemed to be more aggressive around the world and to uh, favor a more uh, authoritarian police state here at home. What about Joe? And, you know, he, he very much is the favorite of a lot of people. The people said his debate performance was not good. It seemed like every candidate uh, just, you know, you know, took turns. It was almost like they were lining up to punch uh, to punch him or something. They all took turns going after him, and he didn't really come back very strongly. Uh, people are saying his debate performance was pretty weak, and people wonder if he really wants the job. You know, he was very close to the job under Obama. He was the vice president. And uh, people have wondered if, if, I mean, is he running simply because there's pressure on him to run? Does he really want the job? Because his campaign uh, does not seem to have the, the kind of enthusiasm and, and strength that other campaigns have had. Uh, but he is very likable. He has a long career in the Senate. He's got that whole Irish working class, urban cop fireman appeal. He's an average Joe. He's Joe Biden. You know, he's got a charisma that has gotten him far in politics, has kept him in the Senate for many years. So uh, people wonder if he could actually end up being the nominee, um, and that a lot of Trump voters would find his personality very appealing. Um, so he's certainly in the race, despite the fact that people aren't seeing the energy they thought that would be there when Joe Biden ran. Now, uh, finally on that, although stay on the line because we've got some callers with questions for both of us. Um, there was an arrest today, charges today, uh, of someone uh, who is close to, said to be close to the Clintons, uh, Bill Clinton in particular, but also I've seen him in more than one uh, photo opportunity with uh, Donald Trump. I had the feeling that this arrest, these charges, are going to be very big in the United States. Sketch, if you would, the background to them. Well, Jeffrey Epstein, that's the name, and he is an individual very wealthy, and uh, there is quite a, quite a history there uh, showing him, you know, uh, engaging in inappropriate and sexual behavior with minors. Um, and he's been arrested, and, and this is something that has raised a lot of eyebrows. I mean, he's had a reputation for many years. Uh, there are many people that feel this guy has skated justice, uh, and that he's basically bought himself, uh, bought himself out of, of, of facing justice for his actions. Um, and I think there's many people that are very happy about his arrest. Now, you know, there are many Trump supporters. Uh, you know, who, who especially would tie him with Hillary Clinton, and there's, you know, the whole Pizzagate conspiracy theory, and there's that whole, that whole world where there are people that are thinking this is part of a much bigger operation in the background. Uh, there are also folks that are saying this is just the Me Too movement being heard. This is women who've been sexually harassed, women speaking up, and finally the Justice Department saying, look, this, this guy may be a wealthy, wealthy investor, but, you know, He's doing things with underage, underage girls. That's not acceptable. He's preying on particular on women, uh, still, uh, you know, teenage girls in foster care and such. The despicable human being who needs to be brought to justice. Mm. Um, but the whole country is watching the case very closely. Hang on for a minute, Caleb, would you? Because Ken is on the line from Gibraltar. Ken. Well, it wasn't Ken. It was actually Kieran. <laughs> I beg your pardon, Kieran. Uh, it's fine. Um, well, 
my family moved to Gibraltar because, you know, it's lovely tax haven status, but I've been watching the local reporting about the oil tanker, and I don't think it's as conspiratorial as you're saying, to be honest. Tell me. Well, because it's, it's because the courts have to issue an order about 48 hours after they took the ship, and I know some of the judges here, and they're just following EU law against Syria, not against Iran. So I don't think it was ordered by John Bolton. I don't agree with, obviously, it's the usual, you know, prodding to get them to prod back. And I, I know that Trump wants a war, or John Bolton wants a war so they can win the next election. But I don't think it's, it's conspiratorial, to be honest. So are you telling me that the government of Iraq decided to enter international politics by seizing an <laughs> oil tanker? Are you seriously putting well, that to me, Kira? They're, they're, following, they're following the law. That's the law of the EU, and they're, they're doing the balancing act as everyone well, else is what, against Spain what, and everyone. Why did no other European government do it then? Why just the government of Iraq? Well, okay, what happens is the oil tanker must have come from the Atlantic, and then the first place it went was Gibraltar War, because that's no, the I'm, cheapest for oil, so uh, that uh, makes sense. Uh, 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 no, it doesn't, because they, they would have sailed uh, surely. Uh, passed uh, into uh, uh, Portuguese uh, waters, wouldn't they? I'm not sure about that. These are, you know, these well, are uh, if, if, if you're turning into the Mediterranean, it seems to me that you have to be in Portuguese waters before you're in Gibraltar waters. Well, even if any, I, I'm still, I'm still almost 100% sure it wasn't ordered because. They, because they got word from the British Foreign Office saying that you've got this oil tanker Aha. and it's against EU law. Aha, that's exactly my point. So it was the British Foreign Office that told the government of the Rock to seize this tanker. Yeah? Well, we've, the we've, government of the Rock we're, we're, looked at the current law, again, from the EU law, not American law, yeah. not, not US sanctions. But no EU other, law. No other uh, European government was prepared to do that. And the Spanish government whose waters they are, is extremely angry about the British and um, uh, the why, British why action. Do you think what evidence do you have that it was in Spanish water? Well, I, I don't have evidence. I've only got the word of the Spanish government. I wouldn't take those seriously because uh, yeah. one time I was actually yeah. off the, the edge of the coast there and there was a Spanish police boat that drove right past 10 meters, well, about 10, 20 meters away. So the Spanish government always tries to get on Gibraltar's territorial waters because they want the rock. Well, we'll discuss that another day. But it, yeah. look, I mean, you're talking about the EU. Spain is a rather significant member of the EU. It is extremely angry about the seizure of the oil tanker. You've just conceded to me that the government of Iraq were told by the British Foreign Office in London to do this. Yet you dispute my contention that the British government told them to do so because the American government told them to do so. Let's hear from Caleb, see what he makes of this uh, rather uh, arcane uh, point. Caleb. Well, you know, there is a faction among Trump's supporters uh, and it is, it is closely tied to the Likud party in Israel. I would say the majority of Israel supporters in the United States uh, do not favor Trump, but there is a particular faction, uh, you know, with Sheldon Adelson and with the evangelical Christian right wing, 
um, that are very closely tied to the Netanyahu wing of Israeli politics, and they see any any escalation with Iran, any attack on Iran, any any effort to be you know just sticking it and being as hard as Iran, uh, as hard on Iran as you can be, they see that as a plus, um, and they see that as proof that Trump is their man. And I think that that is a factor we also cannot rule out that that as Trump faces the 2020 election. There is a faction uh, that he, he really wants to maintain the support of, and that is that, that right-wing Likud party faction uh, of Israel. And let's remember that, that, uh, that, that there is a big, significant amount of, of American Israel supporters and American Israelis that don't like Trump. Um, when Trump spoke at the American Israeli Political Action Committee, there were a number of the people there who walked out or, or didn't listen to his remarks. Um, and that, there, there, are a number, uh, there are a number of Israelis who feel Trump is not trustworthy. Uh, you know, there, there are constant allegations that Trump has, has used anti-Semitic uh, overtones in his, in his rhetoric. So it, it's mixed. You know, not all Israel supporters are strong supporters of Trump. But not the faction <laughs> among Israelis that are supporters of Trump are very, very obsessed with Iran. Kieran, last word to you. Oh, well, uh, well, uh, my point was just that I know the Gibraltar government, there are not a lot of people there, and they're just following what is current EU law. I personally think that EU law is uh, bad. I'm not sure if I'm allowed to curse, but uh, I just think they're following EU law. I don't think it was a conspiracy, but, but that's uh, it. Kieran, it's a bit unfair me asking you, but I'm aware of no EU law that forbids Syria from buying oil from Iran. Um, it, now, the EU, when the EU places sanctions because they're a trading block, aren't they? That's how it works. Yeah, so but, 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 but as far as I know, there are no sanctions against Syria buying oil. Well, I guess people watching can just Google that. Uh, I mean, the local coverage, which is a very well-trusted agency, uh, said that. <clears throat> I, I could Google it again, check a few more sources. No, no, I just, no I'm, I, I, I'm not trying to put you on the spot, and you're a civilian. Yeah. Why, sh why should you know the law? But what I yeah. can certainly tell you, with uh, absolute uh, certainty, is there are no oil sanctions between Iran and Syria. The oil belonged to Iran. It had been sold to Syria. And anyone stealing it, in my opinion, is guilty of piracy. Well, Kieran, thanks. You've been very helpful. You've, uh, uh, you've uh, stirred the pot. I'm sure others will respond to it. Caleb, can I ask you one more uh, question sure. uh, on, a, uh, on, on another subject, really? I'm, uh, I'm looking at the uh, presidential election. I'm waiting for it with bated uh, breath. Uh, I have been one who predicted that Trump would win the first presidential election. I was almost alone in doing so. Uh, and I uh, took the view that whilst not happy that Donald Trump was now the president of the United States, I was very happy that Hillary Clinton wasn't. Now, with your hat on as an analyst and as a man who knows politics and knows those states, those swing states that will make the difference, at this distance, what would your prediction be about the 2020 presidential election? 
It looks very good for Trump right now. Uh, things look very, very good for him. Uh, he still has the support in the key states. Um, he's telling folks that the economy is doing well and unemployment is low. However, one factor that you can't forget is these, uh, these trade sanctions, this trade war, I guess, these tariffs on China. You can't forget that. And that a lot of these red states where Trump has his support are agricultural states. And the, the, the trade war with China has not been good for those who sell the soybean. It's not been good for, for those who, uh, who sell and manufacture and export beef. Um, and the agricultural sector has hurt quite a bit, uh, you know, from Trump's trade war with China. Um, and that, that, you know, the economy right now, it's still, we keep seeing signs that there could be trouble ahead. Uh, the jobs numbers are shaky. Um, and if the economy isn't still glowing, Trump claimed we're in the middle of an economic miracle at his last State of the Union. If the economy doesn't continue to have this, this bright, optimistic uh, outlook on it, if, if things aren't going economically well, Trump could be in a world of hurt pretty quick. But right now, I think things look pretty good for him, um, uh, especially with so much confusion and, and unclarity on the Democratic side. He, he tweeted this week, and you may say that self-praise is no praise at all, merely narcissism, uh, that the whole world envied uh, the United States, and he thanked the President of the United States, who happens to be himself, in a tweet. He thanked himself for these record uh, economic numbers, the stock market, the jobs market, and uh, so on. How much of that is down to him? Well, you know, I think people around the world certainly don't envy our rate of debt. The household rate of debt and the student rate of debt in the United States at this point is massive. And we're looking ahead at some big problems on the economy, uh, because how in the world uh, do you expect people that already have maybe 10000 20000 30000 worth uh, dollars worth of student debt from attending university to then go and get loans from banks to keep buying houses? to get loans from banks to keep buying cars, right? And that the, the economic fallout and the decline of, of the living standards and the income gap between the generations is waiting to play out. Um, and that there's a lot of economic, uh, economic difficulties. We are seeing growth right now. Trump has legalized a lot of the lending practices um, and, uh, that, that were outlawed by the Obama administration. Uh, he, he lifted a lot of the restrictions on oil drilling. He did a lot to give kind of a, a boost uh, to spending uh, when he first came into office. Uh, but the underlying problems of the disappearing good-paying industrial jobs, the low-wage economy, uh, the, the high rate of debt, uh, you know, that, that is still there. Um, and, and for him to just boast this way, uh, you know, it, it, it could really come back to haunt him. Uh, these over-the-top boasts, if, if things go south real quick, uh, we could have uh, we could have Trump with a lot of uh, egg on his face, as they say. Uh, he could be he could be in a lot of trouble for these over-the-top boasts. Caleb Mopin, you're a star man. Thanks for joining us. We hope to talk to you regularly here on the mother of all talk shows. Let's take a break. We had a spirited first hour on where the uh, lines cross over in our rock in Gibraltar. We saw American foreign policy, British foreign policy, the conflict with Iran, the conflict with Syria, all coming together off a rock. Kieran tried to persuade us that it was the government of the rock that made the decision to enter such highly troubled political waters, although he then conceded that the British Foreign Office 
uh, called them and told them to do so. Now, we heard from Caleb how the Democratic Party in the United States, almost to a man and a woman, have swung against Donald Trump on the issue of potential war with Iran. So Democrats that had supported previous wars and previous foreign policy adventures, for example, the now laughable idea that somebody called Juan Guaido, remember him? A guy in the street in Caracas who declared himself to be the president of Venezuela. You remember that? You remember all those governments, stooge governments like our own, who rushed to recognize Guan Guaido to freeze the assets of Venezuela and the Bank of England and so on. You remember all of that? Well, the Trump administration appears largely to have forgotten it. As a matter of fact, the Americans will end up being the only people in the world continuing to say that Juan Guaido is the president of Venezuela. Quietly, all the others are retracing their steps. So let's talk to an academic in England who has a point of view on all of these things, necessarily, because that's his job too. He's a very well-informed man. He's Dr. Tom Packer. He's from Durham University, and I welcome him now to the show. And I think it's by Skype, Dr. Tom. How wonderful. Yes, thank you. Yes, it You're is by Skype. You're very much younger than I imagined you to be. You're so wise. I saw you <laughs> no, as I'm a gray-bearded gray professor. <laughs> thank you, Tom, and wonderful to see you uh, for the first time. I want to ask you, though, about a domestic policy first. Yep. The Democrats are up in arms over the border control uh, issue. And I myself don't quite understand it. Because if a country is a country, if a state is a state, it has to have borders. And if it has borders, it has to control who enters them and who uh, leaves them, but certainly who enters them. Now, there's because of the way the world is divided and because of conflicts and so on, many of which the U.S. were involved in up to their ears in, there's a large number of people from the southern part of the continent of the Americas who are trying to get across the United States border. Trump is determined to stop them. Uh, he's building a wall to stop them, but inevitably uh, there will be some uh, who cross the border illegally and who then have to be somehow humanely dealt with. Now, it's the point of view of the Democrats, uh, some of them more volubly than others, but all of them, uh, that the Trump administration is handling these illegal uh, immigrants to the United States uniquely, uh, cruelly. First of all, is that true? I mean, I, I would say a number of points um, to what you've just said. One is I wouldn't exaggerate how much any political turmoil in Latin America is behind us. So several of these countries like Honduras, violence has gone down recently, but illegal immigration is still increasing. Secondly, I would say 
the Trump administration has made a bigger effort to deter people. So they have expanded existing policies to try and have more separation and the like. So it's not without, um, they're broadly doing the same kind of thing as Obama, but on a bigger scale. So there has been some difference. And thirdly, I would say the Democrats actually have quite a lot of diversity and uncertainty because some of them are coming out for make, stopping making it a crime to enter illegally. Um, particularly some of the more ambitious um, underdogs for the presidency. Others like Joe Biden have been quite cautious on that. And the Democrats have actually more or less caved, because one of the big issues is because there's more illegal immigrants, particularly children, it's becoming a lot harder to look after them. The Democrats have actually caved in terms of giving more money for the Trump administration to look after them without including restrictions on what the Trump administration can do. So if you look at how they're behaving in Congress, as opposed to how people are running for president are sounding off, there's actually a bit more nuance in the Democrats' position. But there's definitely been a big shift, even since the days of President Obama, to dismissing borders altogether in the Democratic Party. But it's far from universal, and particularly those Democrats who represent marginal seats are being quite careful not to go too far on that issue. But that's manna from heaven for Donald Trump, isn't it? He wants to portray the Democrats as a party that wants to abolish United States borders. Yes, I, I think that is true. And it's clearly what he's going to run on. And all the presidential candidates, particularly some of them, um, such as um, Kamala Harris, have said things that potentially puts them vulnerable on that. On the other hand, there is also evidence majority of Americans disapprove of President Trump on this probably partly because of media coverage. Also, I think there's a sense of sort of incompetence and disorder. So I can see why President Trump wants to turn it into, are you in favor of borders? If so, vote for me. If not, vote Democratic. And it might work, particularly if the Democrats, I think what you'll see is when you have a Democratic nominee, they'll try and sound a lot more nuanced and pro-borders in order to get win election. Whether that will work is another matter. But I suspect once the nominations ended, the Democrats will be giving a slight Different Doctor, another issue that's dividing the parties is uh, Donald Trump's uh, policy towards North Korea, which in the period that you and I have been talking has veered from uh, little rocket man, uh, we're going, our weapons are bigger than your weapons, our uh, bombs are bigger than your bombs, we may have to annihilate you and wipe you off the face of the earth, to more or less a love affair with uh, Kim Jong-un, uh, writing letters so tender that, that, that Robert Burns couldn't have written them. They'd bring a tear to a glass eye. Um, and this, uh, I suppose, the tin hat on that was the uh, unexpected, um, definitely not unrequited, because it was good for uh, Kim Jong-un also, but the crossing of the demilitarized zone last Sunday uh, and becoming the first ever U.S. president to enter North Korea, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, to give it its Sunday name. Now, this is widely attacked uh, by the Democratic Party. Again, what's your take on how it's breaking in public opinion terms? I think the public tends to be very worry and weary of war perhaps not quite with the same kind of viewpoint you were just subscribing, because the public, like myself, in the United States, tend to see America as mostly the good guy, but very wary of further war. So I think that's probably one reason why President Trump has been giving off this different mood music, to give the public the impression that he's a man of peace and get great media. 
Um, I think the um, so certainly I think the public is more pleased by how he's behaving now than when he was talking about war. And I think that probably does a lot to explain President Trump's behavior. In terms of the Democratic Party, I think there's a natural tendency when you're in opposition to oppose. So I think there was a lot of talk Trump was being irresponsible earlier. Now there's a lot of talk that he's pandering to dictators and maybe doing it because he's too pro-Russia and things like this. But I think one thing worth remembering is the actual actions, like President Trump more than any previous president, has a tendency to say stuff without actually affecting the actions of the American government or even his own actions. And they weren't nearly as aggressive towards North Korea as some of the rhetoric might have suggested. And they're not being as pro-North Korea as you might think. Like, if you look at people like um, um, Secretary of State Pompeo, they haven't given nearly as much ground as the sort of mood music from President Trump would suggest. So while mood music matters, I wouldn't necessarily suggest US policy is necessarily going to shift that radically. Um, and I think that's important to remember, the distinction between rhetoric and action. Uh, finally, Dr. Tom, and I'm, I'm grateful for your time. Uh, what's your view on the rumors or reports that we talked about earlier in the show that there's a, a breach between uh, President Trump and National Security Advisor John Bolton, and that the latter might not be much longer for this uh, political world. I wish him no harm, of course. <laughs> um, well, yeah, I'm sure he'll be fine otherwise. I would say it's very hard to read. Like, the Trump administration has a ridiculous turnover, and John Bolton could easily join that. On the other hand, I think John Bolton, a lot of it, there's a huge degree to which, he, unless people have personally upset Trump or his family, he's actually been less keen to fire people. And so I think John Bolton clearly has a much different, a much more consistent and a much more confrontational attitude towards issues like Korea. So he's, in that sense, been marginalised. But I suspect Mr Bolton will try and just hang on and wait for policy to change. And I thought it was very striking that Mr Bolton tweeted a picture of himself in Mongolia when Korea was going on. I think Mr. Bolton takes the view this will all end in tears, distance myself, and then when it ends in tears, I can then come and do a more hawkish policy. I'm not saying he'll succeed, but I think it's plausible he might. So he may go, it's the Trump administration, there's always a chance anyone will go at any moment. But I think there's a good chance he might just dig in, not directly confront Trump, and wait for policy to shift again. Lastly, sorry, uh, I wanted to ask your view on what I thought was uh, a, a tweet that uh, inched towards madness and the statement which undoubtedly was across the line into madness. The latter being President Trump's 4th of July speech in which, amongst other things, he claimed that George Washington's forces in 1775 and six had seized control of the airports, which had clearly not been well enough defended by, uh, by England's King George. Uh, and the, 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 the former being the tweet in which President Trump praised Mr. President Trump. In other words, he actually committed to print a statement of congratulations to himself on the United States becoming the envy of the world, uh, uh, the proximate cause of this envy being uh, Donald Trump's economic figures. Talk about the extraordinary 4th of July 
uh, events first, if you will? Um, I mean, I think they're less extraordinary than you might think, in that I think the president probably misspoke, or possibly there was a screw-up with a teleprompter he was clearly relying on. And it has happened more often than you might think. So President Obama, for example, once referred, I think it was President Obama, to more than to 51 states or something, where, of course, there are only 50. So I think I don't think President Trump is exactly an expert historian. Maybe, maybe we were the 51st. <laughs> I don't think it was deliberate. Um, I wouldn't say so. No, uh, certainly not at the moment. Um, but the so I I, I wouldn't overread um, the the gaffe. In terms of that, I mean, obviously the economy is doing pretty well in the United States at the moment. The U.S. of course is extremely rich country, much richer than Russia, richer even than countries like the U.K. anyway. And you know, presidents when the economy is doing well, that's their big selling point. So he's trying to make everything. I mean. Um, you know, I think you could give at least the president credit for not having screwed it up. I personally think his tax cuts may and deregulation may have helped a bit with the economy. So he's obviously going to talk about that. And frankly, when the elections come, he's, we're probably going to get sick of him talking about how great the economy is unless it goes downhill, because it's his big hope for re-election that by and large, when the economy is doing well, presidents win re-election. So he's well, going to bang on and on and on until everyone's sick of hearing about it. I've never used a teleprompter and can't imagine doing so. Uh, I've never read a speech of any uh, kind. Uh, but I think if I read on a teleprompter that General George Washington seized America's airports in the Revolutionary War of 1775, I think I would have stopped watching the teleprompter and started uh, to let it yeah. all come naturally. Dr. Tom Packer. From Durham University, I'm most grateful, not just for your wisdom, but for being able to see you on screen at last. Thank you very much indeed for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. We've got Patrick in Los Angeles on the line. Let's hear from him. Patrick, welcome to the mother of all talk shows. Hey, Mr. Galloway, I sure do appreciate it, and I appreciate, I appreciate your kind uh, message on Facebook as well. I've been listening to your program for, for quite some time, and it gets better and better, so I, I definitely appreciate it. Um, I wanted to call about Tulsi Gabbard. Um, apparently, I think she is by far the best candidate that the Democrats have, top to bottom, particularly on the issue of foreign policy. And it seems as though there's, this, I guess you can say, upsurge you know, from below uh, in terms of you know, campaign donations and pension that she's been garnering. And I don't know if she realistically stands a chance of ascertaining the nomination of the Democratic Party, but she could certainly be a spoiler. I kind of look at her as kind of, I guess, the Democratic equivalent maybe of Ron Paul in 2008 or 2012. Um, she has a lot of you know, grassroots support. I just don't know if it'll be enough to get her over the finish line. What do you think? Well, I uh, admired uh, Senator Ron Paul's foreign policy very much, and I didn't agree with practically any of his domestic policies. And I suspect the same might be true of my views on Tulsi Gabbard, though I don't know her domestic agenda quite so well as I knew Senator Paul's. But there's no doubt at all that, as Caleb Mopen was saying earlier, she's making much more of an impact on this race than anyone could have predicted at the beginning. Uh, the number of donors, the last I saw is 94,000 individual donations. I think it's over 100,000 now. Her performance in the debates, it's been very good, don't you think? 
I, I certainly do. And, you know, it's only been one debate, but I was definitely impressed with her performance in, in that one debate. Um, but that's just a question to bring up, or a good issue, I should say, is that she is kind of a virtual unknown on other aspects of public policy other than foreign policy. I mean, on a domestic front, is she liberal? Is she conservative? Is she moderate? I mean, how is she to be defined? I guess she would be slightly left of center, but, you know, maybe that's even a stretch. I, I really don't know, and I've been trying to follow her career as closely as possible. I certainly admire her on many fronts, but there are a lot of there are a lot of questions that, that have yet to be answered with respect to uh, Congressman Gabbard. Well, she's not as left as Senator Sanders, evidently. Senator Sanders is much more of a trade union man, of a man that speaks to the working class, the blue-collar workers, and thus, uh, if he'd been the candidate last time. All these Rust Belt states that went for Trump, I believe, would have gone for Sanders. What do you think of that? I, I certainly agree. I think there was, there was convergence, if you will, between a, a, an overriding populist movement that sort of united right and left to a great extent against the neo, neoliberal establishment order in America and elsewhere as well. In your country, you can look at, look at Brexit in 2016, the same year. It's a prime example. You know, Unifying the likes of you know, and Nigel Farage. I mean, sometimes politics makes uh, odd bedfellows, but uh, I think to a very, to a great extent, that was kind of what we saw in 2016. I do have to say, I think a lot of Sanders' support went for uh, either Gary Johnson, the Libertarian nominee in 2016, or uh, Jill Stein, who was the Green Party's nominee. Well, Jill Stein was my candidate uh, last time out. I very much hope that Bernie Sanders is in the race. Thanks, uh, Patrick. Not a great line, but a very good call. Spread the word in Los Angeles, won't you, about the mother of all talk shows. From one American, Patrick, to a second. Patrick Henningsen of 21st Century Wire is one of my favorite journalists and a great talker as well as a great writer. He is a global affairs analyst. He's a TV and radio broadcaster. And uh, he joins me now by Skype. Patrick, thank you very much indeed for joining us. I hope we momentarily didn't get our Patricks mixed up uh, in the last moment or two. I saw you briefly on the screen, and I'm glad to see that you're back. Patrick, uh, the thing I wanted to talk to you about most of all was uh, a splendid article by, uh, by Kit uh, Clarenberg in, uh, of, uh, of this parish, actually, of uh, Sputnik. Uh, about the reshaping of uh, Britain's secret uh, intelligence psyop uh, warfare uh, outfits. Integrity Initiative collapsed in ridicule, really, in ruin, and so they've had to uh, reshape it and call it something else. Um, is there going to be any difference in the new outfit? Sketch, if you will, the the architecture of Britain's new PSYOP operation. Well, thanks, uh, thanks for having me, George. Yeah, so the, uh, the Integrity Initiative uh, has mutated, and for those who aren't familiar with what the Integrity Initiative was, it's sort of a clandestine network of uh, operatives, political operatives, journalists, uh, working under the sort of umbrella of the uh, British Foreign and Commonwealth Office, and they're all sort of on side uh, in and this. Don't forget this, the Benjamins, Patrick. They're not he, doing it. They're not doing it for nothing. No, no, they're not doing it. But we're told, uh, George, that they're doing it to defend democracy in the West and oh, to yeah. protect 
to protect Britain from Russian influence and yeah. attacks on our democracy. Uh, but uh, th this latest mutation is basically designed to conceal uh, a bit more because they had problems uh, with the leak or the hack of the Integrity Initiative documents that started in late 2018. And it was hugely embarrassing and it caused a whole rethink and uh, uh, shockwaves went through the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. So they now it falls more under uh, non-disclosure agreements that are kind of almost parallel to the Official Secrets Act. So there's a little bit more secrecy involved, but it's kind of ridiculous because uh, what, what we now know the names of some of the sort of leaders and the, the, the drivers of this. So but the, the bottom line here, George, is this is the weaponization of the third sector. Uh, this is employing NGOs, uh, it's employing journalists, but also charities, and d doing the job of uh, information warfare that previously would have been done under sort of government management. They've sort of spread it out under this myriad of uh, uh, NGOs like led by the Atlantic Council, uh, the DFR Labs, Bellingcat, Zinc is another one of these sort of funding vehicles and uh, Orwellian titles like the uh, me media. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. A diversity Institute. Uh, so this latest is the Open Information Partnership. Uh, this is a, basically a co copy of the Exposed Network, which was launched in uh, March uh, of 2019, but the, the name wasn't very good in terms of PR, so it seems like they've quickly rejigged the PR. They're having a lot of problems, teething problems, George, with making this sort of thing work. And uh, I can sort of give you um, the reasons why it's it's going to f basically fail, uh, but uh, it, it does include weaponized trolling, George. So all of these things that uh, you know we accuse the Russians of doing, uh, which is state-sponsored propaganda, planting fake news, running troll armies on social media, meddling in Western democracy, large-scale malicious disinformation influence campaigns we were told Russia was doing, running clandestine networks, working with the government and the military, organized smear campaigns, all of these things, these things that the Russians were supposedly doing all these years, actually are being done by Britain, by the United States, by EU member states, is effectively NATO member states. So everything that they've accused Russia of doing, they're actually doing themselves. Yeah, and, and, I, and even worse, Patrick, uh, if the Russians were doing it, they were doing it to foreigners in foreign countries. Our uh, PSYOP army is actually doing it to us in our country. So we're paying taxes to a government that is giving money to these PSYOP warriors to attack us. Yeah, yeah. So they, they're, they want to say they're defending democracy against Russian disinformation. But in reality, networks like this that include journalists that are already on six figure salaries with some of the leading papers like The Times, The Guardian, Sky News, etc. They're spreading disinformation uh, and actually attacking democracies like in Spain. Uh, they had a defense minister basically uh, his his nomination withdrawn. Yeah, through this they, sort boasted, of they boasted they boasted about that. Yeah.
and uh, not not Russian. It's not ru Russian disinformation. It's it's people like us. It's social media users exposing uh, the reams of disinformation that are spewing out of government and mainstream media. But what they're doing is labeling that as Russian disinformation. Basically, anything that counters the sort of prevailing uh, state narrative or the prevailing NATO narrative is being automatically labeled as somehow Russian disinformation or has Russian influence behind it. So, you know, the only threat to democracy that I can see and many others is this constant manipulation and interference by these types of networks that are run by a government that are paid for by the taxpayer, uh, basically spreading disinformation about Russian uh, supposed disinformation operations. So it's not the Russians, it's us that's the target. I say us, the general public who use social media, but also independent journalists, people like yourself, uh, networks like the networks that are carrying your shows as well. But we're the real threat uh, uh, to the established order in that sense. So, but this is interesting, George, because this is an identical carbon copy of something that was formulated during the Cold War, which was called the Information Research Department. And this was to counter Soviet propaganda and infiltration. And they were especially concerned with infiltration into labor unions and the international socialist, as it were. But, you know, the question was, even back then, George, now we're looking back at this, this is a carbon copy of a Cold War model. How much of that infiltration was infiltration by the Soviets and how much was actually the uh, British state trying to undermine the labor movement itself? So the parallels to today are frankly striking. Especially, Although, uh, look, uh, I was around, Patrick, when the IRD were uh, active. It was in snail mail time. Everything was on paper, uh, pamphlets and books and so on. We've now got a phenomenally more savvy general public, don't we? And so fast, you know, I can and you can put out a message, in my case to well over a million followers, uh, that will rapidly multiply and, and move. Uh, and because people, I think certainly my one million plus followers do, trust me, they, they might not agree with me, but they trust me that I'm telling them what I think is the truth. But when it comes to state disinformation uh, uh, efforts like this, they have the major handicap that nobody trusts them. Yeah, it's not only that, but you know, there's, a, there's my old saying, which I coined was, uh, uh, the truth costs nothing to go viral, but if you want to push you-know-what uphill, uh, it costs, in this case, 100 million pounds wow. uh, ne needs to be allocated to push, basically, uh, something that's not true, something that's uh, twisted, manipulated. But people like uh, internet users who follow you on Twitter, George, a lot of your active uh, compatriots on social media, they're, they're doing it for free because they recognize the truth has a certain ring to it, but not only that, they can do their own research and triangulate the facts themselves. And there's hundreds and thousands of people that are doing this. So no matter how many troll armies that they can build to sort of in interfere, what, what will eventually happen, George, if the government keeps at this, they'll, they'll ruin a lot of social media platforms just by the sheer scale of the sort of state-sponsored trolling or the NGO, Quango, uh, third sector, state-funded. Uh, trolling that, that we're seeing right now. Already that's 
definitely the case uh, around Bellingcat and some of these other uh, organizations that have been funded by these same oracles. Uh, they're, they're, they have to deploy trolls to manage the conversation, to validate their findings, to create the appearance that what they're putting out is true and has broad public support, when in fact it doesn't. And the mainstream media plays that role for them as well. So there isn't a bit of an illusion to a lot of the general public as to what's the, tr the truth behind any story like Skripal, like the chemical weapons attacks in Duma, uh, like so many others. Um, there is a portion of the public that's still being led up the garden path by this very elaborate network that stretches from these NGOs, these foreign office uh, projects, and also with mainstream media uh, providing the sort of heavy lifting in terms of credibility, as it were. Well, uh, you're right to point at the multiple levels of this. Uh, I, I recalled, uh, as you were speaking, uh, the uh, encounter between Professor Noam Chomsky and Andrew Marr. Andrew Marr said, I can say anything I like on the BBC. And Professor Chomsky answers, but you wouldn't be on the BBC unless the BBC were confident that they liked what you say. And that is, of course, true. Uh, there's, there's, there's more chance of me landing on the moon than landing a job with the BBC presenting a program like this. There's more chance of me uh, uh, rewriting uh, some of the great historical works than there is of me writing a column for one of the billionaire-owned uh, surviving uh, newspapers and so on. So you've got the uh, monopoly ownership of what they call the mainstream media. Then you've got the state regulator, who is the reason I'm here uh, on Sputnik, because they started coming after me because I challenged the state narrative on the Scripple affair. And now we've got another wing. A hundred million pounds, you say, of taxpayers' money uh, to uh, spread disinformation on social media and throughout our society. Again, I repeat to you, we are paying them to mislead us. We are paying them to attack our uh, tribunes, to try and destroy them. And as you say, fourthly, you have the real danger that places like Twitter and even Facebook and even uh, YouTube will increasingly become less hospitable to voices like yours and mine. We better get busy inventing new platforms, Patrick, don't you think? Yeah, no, you're not wrong there, George. I mean, the Atlantic Council, uh, this is a, a so-called think tank, which is, gets money from the uh, Gulf states, from the military uh, defense industry, uh, from governments as well, from NATO. Uh, and they're advising Facebook on what counts to uh, ban or, you know, there's Venezuela accounts being pulled down in mass a couple of months ago, Iranian accounts being pulled down in mass. And they're saying that these are, these are bot accounts. And this isn't actually true. Uh, is, at the same goes for the so-called Russian bot accounts, many of which were pulled down or accused of being such uh, in the public by the Atlantic Council. But the problem is they, they do have the ear of uh, Twitter, of, of the Jack Dorseys of the world in the Silicon Valley, of the Mark Zuckerbergs in the world. And if you look at the behavior of these social media companies, they will, they will attack anybody. They will deplatform anybody depending on what country they're in. So Twitter will attack the Venezuelan socialists. They'll deplatform them on the left or the Bernie progressives. 
uh, in, in America, let's say. And on the right, uh, they'll go for the American conservatives. Uh, they'll go for the anti-globalism uh, activist uh, group or whatever. They'll also hit across the board anti-war, anti-interventionist, anti-imperialist. So they're pretty much going in all directions in terms of deplatforming. It's not just one group or another. It does change. It's relative to the political climate in each, in each country. Because at the end of the day, the large social media monopolies, they want to be able to operate and have access to Pakistan, to Brazil, to Argentina, to all of these markets. So they'll they'll do whatever the gov whatever the prevailing winds of government are in those countries. And in the case of Britain, uh, they're putting pressure on these social media companies to quote clean up their act of extremism or hate speech or extremist speech. Granted, there is uh, uh, hate speech and things like this that do exist that is real incitement of violence. But the definition just keeps getting more and more arbitrary. And at the end of the day, you can block somebody on Twitter. You can block them on Facebook. They already have tools. Uh, if you don't like what you're seeing or you want to sort of filter out some of the uh, unsavory bits, um, it's already there. But they're going a little bit further than that. And they're doing that uh, with the uh, partnership of government. The UK government is running its online harms consultancy. Uh, public consultancy was finished uh, only last week. And uh, so they're going to take that feedback from the public. I don't know how much they're going to pay attention, but they're going to do that to sort of inform the sort of the government censorship dictates of the next few years and, and enshrine some of this into law. It's very scary, actually, uh, this, the level of collusion between government and social media digital monopolies. It's not just national monopolies, George. It's unprecedented. It's a global monopoly. Think of the power involved there that these companies have in terms of regulating the conversation in any country or globally. Now, just remind me, what's this new outfit called? Uh, because I'll tell you, uh, one thing they'll not be able to close down, uh, I hope, uh, is parliamentary scrutiny. Um, people can, if I were still a member of parliament, I'd be asking, believe me, many hundreds of parliamentary questions uh, to uh, get at the truth of what these people were doing. And questions were asked, and it was one of the reasons for the apparent demise of the Integrity Initiative uh, when it was discovered that the Integrity Initiative were using government money to attack the leader of the opposition. Uh, so parliamentary scrutiny cannot be avoided uh, if the money is coming from the Foreign Office budget. Uh, the, the government refuses to answer questions about intelligence matters, but this is not coming, is it, from the intelligence agencies. It's coming from the FCO. So British members of parliament can subject uh, this expenditure to rigorous questioning. That's right. That's right. So th this particular program is allocated 10, billion, uh, 10 million pounds. Uh, this is the Open Information Partnership, as it's called. Uh, and this is basically a, a child of the Integrity Initiative for all intents and purposes. But yeah, this does fall under the Commonwealth Office. And from the beginning of these programs, the foundation of the Institute for Statecraft, uh, which was in 2005, 2006, laid dormant until Russia became public enemy number one officially uh, after the Ukrainian crisis. And so we're talking about a, a projection uh, in total expenditures in all these programs, at least 100 million at least 100 million. So the Open Information Partnership, so this is the Foreign and Commonwealth 
Commonwealth Office. This is under their counter disinformation and media development program, very Orwellian sounding program run by Alan Duncan, we're told. But you also have to remember, George, this is all under the purview of the cabinet office, actually, and Mark said will. So this, this, there's been a revolution in government in, in the UK that, start, uh, that Tony Blair is responsible for, yeah. which was reversing uh, decision-making and agenda-making, which used to come from ministers' offices and ministers to instruct the cabinet office uh, to get, you know, to, and that, but now it goes the other way, George. Uh, decisions and agendas uh, are being made in the cabinet office and they're being put out to the various ministerial departments where they have to execute that policy or that agenda. Yeah, so although the, the cabinet office itself can be questioned, but you're right to say Tony Blair, uh, because he wanted to be the president, but that's not allowed here, uh, he made uh, the cabinet office into essentially a presidency through which he could operate. I know Alan right. Duncan exceedingly well, more well than uh, I could really tell you on the air. Uh, I, I know everything about Alan Duncan. He He's a person with some honor. Uh, and uh, I hope that he'll act uh, with honor uh, in this regard. And if he doesn't, uh, if Jeremy Corbyn's watching, as he well might be, I really hope that the next government, if it is one that he can influence, should scrap these things. Because, you know, the truth, as you say, the truth doesn't need government money uh, to, be, uh, to be circulated. People circulate the truth for free. Uh, uh, there are hundreds of thousands, millions of good, honest citizens in Britain who want to find the truth and pass it on to other people. It's only, as you say, when you're trying to put, you know, push you-know-what up a hill that you've got to pay £100 million pounds, uh, so to do it. Patrick, uh, I just close with this. A young, super smart, dynamic fellow like you should be looking at how we can have our own Twitter, how we can have our own Facebook, how we can have our own YouTube. No disrespect to the owners of those three companies, but if the day ever comes that I can't find you on them, or you can't find me on them, people have got to know that there is somewhere that we can go that is not in the pockets of these uh, billionaire uh, corporations. Patrick Henningsen, of 21st Century Wire. I urge everyone to follow 21st Century Wire. They produce wonderful stuff. Uh, Patrick, the very best of luck and power to your elbow. That's Patrick Henningsen of 21st Century Wire. Uh, in the words of the French revolutionist Saint-Just, he who half makes a revolution is digging his own grave. Adil, thanks for that in the United States for bringing us up to date with what's happening in Sudan. Now, as I've said several times now already, I absolutely love my next guest. He is a force of nature, irresistible individual, a character like very few I've ever met in my life. He's a pretty good sax player too. Uh, that's why I brought my sax along. You can see it on the table, Brian. It's in honor of you. Brian Travers of UB40, welcome to the mother of all talk shows. <laughs> wow, George, man. How do you follow that? Wow. How you doing, George? I'm good, I'm good. Now, your daughter was opening her new music uh, venue this evening. 
How was Keep, that? And tell us where and how we can oh, see well, it. Oh, thank you so much. It's in the centre of Birmingham, in a place called Cambridge Street, up Broad Street. It's called the Prince of Wales, and it's a fine art establishment. And um, my daughter's particularly live music crazy and sets up programmes, and it's just what any uh, multinational franchise high street needs. You know, and individuals, locals working there, locals using the joint, local musicians playing. Just like we went when we were young men, George. Yeah. And you could see a band every night, you know. So it's the but, Prince uh, of Wales in Cambridge Street in the centre of Birmingham, just off Broad Street, yeah? Thank you so much, sir. Oh, man. Not only am I heading to it, uh, when I come up to uh, see you uh, uh, later this month, now, you're fundraising uh, for a trust that's doing what it can uh, to provide the health service with extra help uh, to help people suffering from the problem that struck you. Uh, tell us about the trust and about, about what happened to you. Maybe I can maybe I can squash it into a into a you know something that's digestible for everybody. So three months ago I had a seizure in bed. I go to the hospital the next day. Thank God for the NHS. What would we do without those people? My, I find out I got two tumours in my head. I take them out four days later. They send me home a day later, which is just testament to how astonishing these people are. And. Um, a guy called Ashley Giles, who's the England cricket manager, you know, the team manager. Yeah, yeah. They're playing right now in the World Cup. His wife, unfortunately, suffered the same thing. And he set up the Giles Trust. Me being a kind of, I suppose I'm, I'm quite vicarious, you know, I like to talk and I love people. There's nothing more than talking to people for me. And it asked me to become a spokesman in the Giles Trust. And we're, we're putting on a bunch of fundraising evenings. One, a big dinner, free course, black tie dinner, dance thing at Edgebaston Cricket Ground on the 12th of October on Saturday. Before that, we've got one at the Hare and Hounds, the HQ of all music in Birmingham. If you're a musician, this is where you go. Funny enough, it's where UB40 played their first gig oh, yeah. 40 years ago. Wow. <laughs> that, that went quick. Remember how fast we could run then, George? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, on Saturday the 27th of July, there's a performance here, and people are coming in from all over the world to help. Dirty old Birmingham. These are people from all over the world. The Curie Hospital in, in Birmingham is where they've been those soldiers from Iraq and Syria and, and people with things in their heads. And even Ishmael, a good, good surgeon, said to me, he said, if I had another one of these machines, it's £360,000. He said, I could take that to the Gaza Strip and take shrapnel out of kids' heads. I could cure people and keep people alive. The brains of the future, you know. And so I'm determined to raise this money and, and see what we can do there by just using, I suppose, what we do to earn a living by talking publicly. And So the, you know, that's our you. target. That's our target. 360,000. And I'm not ashamed to use your show to do this. No, no, and I thank you so far much. from it. We have one on Saturday, 7th of September. This is live performances from Susan Cadogan and Winston Reedy. Do you remember Susan Cadogan? Yeah, I do. So good in the 70s. Yeah, I do. First you take my heart in the palm of your hand and squeeze it tight. Oh, man. What a beautiful woman, great singer. And all these things are all raising money because the point being, only 1% of a national research but medical research budget per year goes to um, brain cancers and brain tumours. 
And uh, of course, every, every, everything's important. But man, we got to fix these little kids' heads. That kid that's going to change the future for everybody is out there somewhere. Might need his head fixing one day. And this machine takes the trauma out of it for, for, for young children and, and for older people. And uh, it just seems like a worthy uh, objective to have. Indeed, yeah. So what's this one, which is a tribute to your career uh, that I'm coming to towards the end of July? I think, well, you know, this is done for the philanthropic beauty of, of people who I know, who hardly know even, who put these evenings on and give them titles and... And I shall endeavour to be at every one of them and support them in my convalescence. Unfortunately, I'm not allowed to play and fly because, you know, we've had neurosurgery. Pressure, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but that's nothing. No, that's not far away. I'll be playing football soon. Me and you. Well, I understand you're an Aston Villa supporter. I certainly am, George. You'll be looking forward to next season uh, with them in the Premiership. I want to go back to something you just said there, Brian. Uh, 40 years ago, you played your first gig in the Hare and Hounds in Birmingham. In, Very in much a Birmingham, yes. Birmingham band. You all met at school. We um, all met at art school at art 11 school. years old. Not college. It was, you know, secondary modern school. Uh, yeah. And it happened to be an art school. And it was an incredible place. And it taught us how to teach ourselves and believe in ourselves. And if only we were smart enough to have known that then. But, uh, you know. So, so when, when did you realize you were going to be a band? I mean, a band does, doesn't collide with each other. Uh, well, I think, this is part, you know, I think part of the reasons that so many Tories like us is because we were forced into it by Margaret Thatcher's <laughs> catastrophic policies of the time. There was no work. We were, one day we all said we got more chance of having a number one record than getting a job. And we, and we went to art school and, you know, we, I'm not saying we were Cambridge, Oxford boys. We, we weren't quite academic enough. But we could think our way through things, you know. If, if that was our objective, we'd have gone there. And, uh, and so we became a band and everybody could play in, in them days in a pub every night of the week. And we met Chrissy Hines in Covent Garden. And she took us on tour and we had a hit. And... The world's full of beautiful people. And tell tell, tell us about the first time you heard your uh, band on the radio. <laughs> yeah, I told you. Yeah, it's a great story. <laughs> well, you know, anybody out there listening, the first time you make a record, and there'll be people who know this, you can't wait the first time you hear it's on the radio or the television. So I'm standing at a bus stop with a saxophone with all these strangers and the traffic's all going past and this guy's got his window down and there's a record playing and I couldn't tell anybody, you know. <laughs> Unbelievable. What, so, uh, what, was that, what was that song? It was called Food for Thought. It's a wonderful, it was a wonderful lyric. track. It was written by Ali and Robin's father, Ian Gamble, a famous Scots uh, folk singer. Folk a singer, a yeah. fine singer and writer. Yeah, yeah, very, very fine. And fine oh, and very political guy too. Oh, well, well, I believe, well, all of us in UB40, we grew up together as children, you know, in school. And we were all from different houses, you know, different homes. But I believe we were politicised by the Campbells. They taught us the right and the wrong way to be. And uh, because they were so, you know, so loud in their support. You know, they've been on the order of Maston March and their support of what's right and wrong. And, you know, socialism was... 
Well, well, I'm just going to say, uh, your latest album is called For the Many. It which, certainly is, yes. Of course, uh, drawing on Shelley is the slogan of, uh, of Labour, Corbyn's Labour. Purely, purely in honour of those people, George, and Jeremy Corbyn and the team and the, and the party and how, how hard they're fighting and how much, how much odd untrue press they get written about. I mean, just... Well, they do get a very hard time, oh. but you're still a big supporter of Corbyn, yeah? Absolutely, yes. I don't hear any sense out of, him, out of anybody except him and you. There's a few people, you know. Thank you. There's a lot much. of people like me in this world. Now, in uh, the 60s, we've heard it all, George. Among other things that I learned uh, in my really extraordinary, unforgettable encounter with you on Thursday... That was a great day, by the way. It was a great, great day. <laughs> ...was that you moved to Jamaica. You took over uh, Bob Marley, God rest his soul. Uh, you took over his recording uh, facilities. That's right, yeah. Tell us about your seven years in Jamaica. Well, it was just wonderful. Me, me and Ali, the guy who sung in you before, see, he, he put all the equipment... Bob Marley built a studio near, up in the hills from a place called Port Maria, opposite the Queen Mum's old mate's house, um, Firefly. Um, oh, no I, coward. Uh, yeah, no coward. yeah, no coward, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And then poor Bob, you know, he, he, he ravages of time got him and carried him off. And so Ali put all the equipment in. We put the equipment in and built it into a studio and made regular records. It was a beautiful place. You could put an orchestra in there. Incredibly, acoustically, brilliantly balanced place. And um, what was the story? I was telling well, you. Well, no, you but just to, ja like, Jamaica. Jamaica is this tiny oh. little place. Has had tiny little such, dot of an island. Such an influence the in the world, yeah. Oh, it changed music in the world forever. It's changed the way we dress, the way we carry ourselves. Just like little Rosa May Parks changed the way the, the civil rights movement moved by sitting at the front of that bus. She freed us all. She gave us all a chance to be free. And Jamaica is a struggle, you know. The money gets on the island, it goes in hotels, and it's off the island, and there's, and there's great poverty on the island, great struggle, but that Jamaican spirit, that, that tenacity, it's took them all around the world. And, you know, you have a Jamaican come to a party, he brings one with him, or she brings it with him, they don't come looking for one. And it's affected music. Even kids down where you live want to talk, want to talk like Jamaicans. Yeah, exactly. Every, all the kids want to be uh, Jamaicans, white and, and, and black. Well, yeah, suddenly... I want to be Jamaican. I'm Irish. I want to be an Irish Jamaican. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you're, you're so quintessentially brum in your yeah. voice, and you come from that part of Birmingham, which is just so multicultural, and yet, oh, it's so and alive. yet happy policing itself with no difficulties. That's the atmosphere in which you grew up. Absolutely. We've always policed ourselves. You know, people say, oh, it's tough over there. But uh, not for us. We never saw that. Just, there's lots of cultures from all over the world. We can eat food from everywhere. There's an incredible tolerance. And, you know, and this is the joy of living with other people from other places who cook differently who talk differently and have different life experiences and different wisdoms and, and stuff they brought from their history. And, uh, man, every day's a school day. And uh, I've lived 25 lives just growing up where I live. 
It's been incredible. Incredible. Uh, I every, food from everywhere. Oh, man. I can say thank you in a million languages. Shukran, <laughs> my brother. Thank you very much uh, indeed. I really uh, tell your daughter to expect yes. uh, me and my and missus. Pleased, I certainly will, George. We'll be in the door of the Prince of Wales. Remind us of the name of the trust again. It's the Giles Trust. The Giles Trust. G-I-L-E-S. The England Cricket Manager. Yeah. It's an incredible organisation and they work tirelessly. And, you know, they asked me to become a spokesman. And, and somebody said, um, thank you, thank you for doing this. It feels it's my privilege. This is my privilege. Without this, I wouldn't have been able to be part of that. And being part of that, oh, man, I feel like I'm ten foot tall. What's the, what's the website address? Um, I don't know. Uh, right, we'll get, we'll get... I've got short-term memory problems at no, the moment, no, George. No, of course, don't worry about that. We'll uh, sort it's of... It's easily findable. He's the England cricket manager. Yeah. It's, 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 the it's an incredible organisation. And we're going to have a, a uh, gets dance. Behind I've that. got tickets for you if you want to come. Yeah, come yeah. down and have a talk with us, George. Yeah. That'd be fantastic, man. Bring I've it. not got a black tie. I'll need to go out and buy one, but I'll, 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 I'll think about it. Look, I've been, uh, I've, been, I've been in a pop group for 45 years. I've got about 600 of them. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> I've been looking at the old UB40 videos, man. Uh, I, yeah. I, I, I saw you. Uh, you look about 19 on them, which I suppose, <laughs> I suppose you were. I was, uh, about, I suppose. Magnificent, magnificent. <laughs> the UB40 uh, the, the music story is... Just utterly right. entrancing. So there's people you know listening goes, to this. George, it's every day. Every yeah. day you have your photograph taken. It, yeah. It's, uh, we take what we do seriously. Yeah. Try not to take ourselves too seriously. And, uh, you know, and it seems to work. Yeah, well, definitely. Uh, everyone listening around the world, look them up if you don't know UB40. And you uh, are on Twitter. Everybody knows who we are. But you... times we've committed, George. <laughs> <laughs> Now, you're on Twitter, you are BTUB40. I believe so, yes. Yeah, <laughs> I can tell you that. BTUB40. Please, follow Brian Travers now. BTUB40. Just for, uh, for the American listeners, Brian. Yes? UB40 means something. What does it mean? Well, when, when, when we were kids, uh, it meant, it, and you were unemployed, you didn't have a job, you'd have to go to the Social Security and, and get you, you know, some rent money or money to live on. And it was called a UB40, an Unemployment Benefit Card, and the registration number was 40. And we all had one, and uh, it didn't sound like anybody else. And <laughs> I must say, that line, that we had a better chance of a number one hit than we did of getting a job, is That's probably the, the greatest recruiting line I have ever heard. Now, Thank you. Uh, Mrs. Thatcher <laughs> is gone, but Mrs. Yeah. But Thatcherism has not gone. And it hasn't gone, no. All of this 40 years that you're yeah. talking about, either Mrs. Thatcher has been in control or Go Thatcherism George. has been Go in George. Go control. Man, and that's what we've got to end. Mrs. That's Thatcher is gone in another place, God knows where. But Thatcherism is still Let's going. Let's just be good to each other, right? Why can't we just be good to each other? And everything's going to be okay. Brian, we here's, the, here's the web uh, address. www.hospitalcharity.org slash the Giles Trust. Forward slash the Giles Trust. There, I've done the job. 
Thank I'll, you, I'll see you in the Prince of Wales. I'll see you, you in a black well, tie at the dinner dance. God willing, we'll play football together when you're better. Maybe we'll even get on the stage together. Brian Travers of UB40, thanks for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. Let's take a break. Ask Adam, Gary Adam, welcome back to the show. Thank you. A, we're building up a huge backlog of questions for you. But first, let's take another Skype call. Hey, George, it's Jesse from Dayton, Ohio. I just wanted to tell you I'm a big fan. I've been following you since uh, 2002, I think, when I was in high school, and I seen you debate Christopher Hitchens and all that. But uh, I just had a question. I was wondering if you had any advice for the 2020 presidential candidates on the Democratic side. Anything, any insight? Well, how remarkable. Uh, we talked about uh, Dayton, uh, or we talked about Dundee earlier. In Dundee, my father... God rest his soul, worked in the National Cash Register Company, NCR. And he worked there uh, for most of his working life before they threw him on the redundancy scrap heap. Uh, but the headquarters of NCR, Jesse, as you well know, are in Dayton, Ohio. And uh, a very good uh, friend of mine, Lamis, uh, took me uh, to the National a cash register, NCR headquarters in Dayton, Ohio, so I could see the very people that threw my father out of work after 30 years of service. And I'm grateful to her for that, and I'm grateful to you, Jesse, for that uh, call. Uh, I don't know, I'm not really in a position to give them advice, and, you know, if they adopted my political program, they probably wouldn't get selected, probably wouldn't get elected. So I'm looking for a balance, basically. I'm looking for the person with whom I most agree, but who has the best chance of beating Donald Trump and becoming president of the United States. And I believe that person is Senator Bernie Sanders. I disagree with him on many things, uh, especially on foreign policy things. But I agree with him on more things than on any other candidate who could win. So Tulsi Gabbard's foreign policy is much better for me. Uh, but I don't believe she can win the nomination. I don't believe that she can win the presidential election. If that changes, I'll let you know, Jesse. Now, uh, let's take another Skype call that has a question for Adam. Let's uh, see uh, where that is, from whom that is. If it's not ready, I'll... Uh, it is Hi, ready. George. Let's go with it. Hi, yeah. Adam. Um... My question is around the U.S. military might, uh, its size and power, uh, and especially given that Donald Trump dodged the Vietnam draft, citing flat feet or heel spurs or some other pokey. Um, do you think his uh, excitement for the U.S. military is because he needs to get the message across to every other nation that they are supreme and that if you're not prepared to listen, then you'll listen to my weapons and my military staff? Or do you think he will genuinely take the US and by default the rest of us, i.e. the UK and other nations that will just say yes into a war situation? Um, I'd be keen to know if you thought it was all bluster or if you think we've got genuine cause for concern. Thank you. Excellent call. I thought it was Neil Lennon on the screen. Uh, he's a, the Celtic manager. 
Uh, Adam, you know a lot of things, but you probably don't know much about Glasgow. From, I remember from you, yeah. from many years of the mother of all talk shows. Of course. <laughs> uh, now, that was a, a, an important question. Indeed. You, you, you give me your answer. Well, I think that the record in these, uh, what is it, three years now, just about already shows that it's mostly bluster. And to the first point of the question, which frankly doesn't get asked enough, I think that the military bravado, the yearning for parades, uh, it's not because he admires China or Russia or the DPRK or other countries that do have a very uh, pageant, pageantry-laden parades, but it's for domestic purposes. He needs to win the military vote, and it's not a small constituency in the United States. Beyond that, he needs to win the vote of patriotic people in the swing states who see a Democratic Party who, in terms of their cultural characteristics, are drifting so far away from the center of mainstream Americana that sometimes the best way to prove that you're the antithesis of that is to have the tanks rolling on camera. So it's about domestic pageantry in pursuit of domestic electioneering. To some degree, it's about look at us, uh, don't mess with us. But anyone in a foreign ministry of a foreign land or a president or prime minister who didn't already know that America can blow up the world several times over, the parade isn't going to change their mind if they were that stupid from we the get-go. We have, get -go. though, uh, the allusion was made by our caller. We have had not one but three uh, draft-dodging uh, presidents, uh, there may have been others, but three of which I'm uh, obviously aware, are Bill Clinton, who dodged the draft in Vietnam by becoming a student at Oxford University, George W. Bush, uh, who uh, dodged the draft uh, by being, uh, uh, what was it, what do they call him, a National Guardsman, although he scarcely turned up, according to Michael Moore's uh, wonderful film, nine, uh, 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 Fahrenheit 9-11. He scarcely turned up for the National Guard. And uh, Donald Trump's bone spurs, uh, which apparently have only been cured by endless rounds of golf. <laughs> uh, there is a sort of chicken hawk thing going on, though. Well, there certainly is, and I'll, I'll set the record straight. I wasn't around during the Vietnam War in the United States, but if I was, I would have dodged that war for the same reasons that, in a much more dignified way, Muhammad Ali preferred going to prison than to kill people who he said had no quarrel with him and that he had no quarrel with. But one way or another, I think avoiding an unnecessary, an unethical, a murderous and a disastrous and an expensive war is a good thing, even if you have to sacrifice some of one's dignity to do it. The people you mentioned did. Muhammad Ali obviously did not. Uh, they both ended up not killing people in Vietnam, which was a good thing. The difference, though, is that I don't want to send other people to war either. I don't want to fight in an unnecessary war. would happy to be fight, fighting in a necessary one, but there haven't been for many decades any wars like that afflicting Western countries like the US. And so I think for someone like John Bolton, who famously and proudly died the draft and is now Mr. Militant Gung-Ho number one with his stealth fighting moustache and the rest of it. I think that they have a complex, but Trump certainly doesn't. Trump wants to make money. He doesn't want to make war. And insofar as that's part of his personality, I think slowly but surely it's trickling down, famous expression, uh, into the policies. Scottish Bull says, does Adam really believe Hitler died in the bunker? I personally think not. South America, the likely destination when he escaped. What's your take on that?
Well, I remember there was a wonderful story of Rick Wakeman uh, telling um, one of these talk show, chat show hosts about his time in Uruguay. And he remembers going to the customs man who was being very difficult. And he recalled that he had a very strong German accent uh, for someone uh, in a South American country. So, yeah, I mean, it's very well known that many Nazis fled what would have been justice either at the hands of the Soviet Union or at the hands of the Western allies to go south. America way. Whether Hitler did or not, I don't know if we'll ever know. Uh, I think it's as simple as that. Well, uh, you say that they fled to South America and some of the uh, lower order mass murderers did, uh, but the, uh, the Americans themselves took some of the top Nazis Indeed. Uh, to go and work uh, on their weapons programs and their rocket uh, programs. They actually saved Nazis from justice to take them to the United States. And other prominent Nazis went on to found the European Union. Indeed, very much. There was Robert Schumann, no uh, direct relationship to the composer from the 19th century of the same name. And then there was, of course, von Braun, who was in many ways the father of NASA. And this was something called Operation Paperclip, where people that would have otherwise been executed in some cases for their crimes, they were instead denazified, they were whitewashed, they were rehabilitated, and they became the big rocket men, to coin a, an expression from Donald Trump, of the Eisenhower and Kennedy and Johnson administrations. Denazified, were they I? Let's take a call. Uh, we've got an, an Ask Adam uh, call. Yes, caller. Max. Hi, hi chaps. Um, hi, yeah, Max. Max. Go ahead, hi, Max. Yeah, I'm, a, I'm an army officer and I've served for about seven years now. Um, Welcome. What I want to ask was, in, when you go to Sandhurst, if you're slightly left-wing, you have a hell of a time. You know, uh, essentially you are... The, you know, the, the, the bad guy in every exercise. And throughout my career, what I've seen is how every single institution has been allied with the Tories. Now, do you think it's like how the Whigs purged the Tories in the 1700s? I think my, my dates may be incorrect there. But um, what I've noticed now, every establishment, be it the BBC, uh, the, the, you know, the RAF, the Navy, uh, the Civil Service, even though especially partial anyone who is left-leaning, especially if they lean towards Corbyn, they're, they're isolated. What, what's your opinion on that? Well, that's a very interesting question from a very interesting caller. Max, an army officer, uh, asking uh, about the, I suppose, the rather un-British way in which institutions are now being ruthlessly purged in the way that actually never used to quite happen yes. here. Uh, we once had a kind of independent civil service, not entirely independent, and Tony Benn has a lot of writings on that, uh, but uh, certainly more independent than we have now. Uh, ditto the BBC, once upon a time, a byword for, uh, for uh, broadcasting standards, now really just a ragbag of Tory placemen and women. Uh, do you agree with that, and if so, how did it happen? I think that the reason that these putatively non-biased, there's no such thing, and that's the secret, but these supposedly middle-of-the-road, let's give everyone the hearing uh, institutions, became so one-sided, I wouldn't say that they're for or against one political party. I would say that they're for the elites, they're for the establishment against everyone else. I think it's much more instructive to phrase it in that sort of language rather than try to pin it down on party politics, not least because party politics, as it was 
once known is disintegrating before our very eyes, noses, ears and possibly mouths. The problem is that people have an idea that something which doesn't exist can exist. The perfect paradigm of objectivity, of non-bias, of let's give everyone a try, that doesn't exist because it can't exist. We're not computers, we're not algorithms and even algorithms are imperfect but we're human beings and all human beings have biases and so instead of trying to strive for this unattainable uh, ideal and I'm not even sure if it is an ideal I say just let it be a free-for-all give everyone a chance to speak left right center up left, down thousand the middle flowers bloom absolutely right German mouse said Max I'm going to surprise you with something uh, a friend of mine Jim Davidson runs care after combat and uh, I went to a, a very black tie dinner indeed, uh, at which uh, Gavin Williamson, uh, the then Defence Secretary, uh, entered. And when I uh, shouted a joke about him looking and seeming like Private Pike, everyone laughed, including him. Don't tell him your name, Pike, I said as he came to the table, and everyone laughed, I must say, including him. Now, at that dinner, which was attended by half a regiment of army officers, including some very senior ones indeed. I mean serving army officers, not former. There was a queue. There are pictures of it. There was a queue of army officers wanting to talk to me. And do you know what they overwhelmingly said? You were right about Iraq. You're absolutely right. So, you know, right wing, maybe, but not stupid. They knew, and they, were not, they also had the courage to say so, that I had been right about the Iraq war. Is that your experience too? George, I absolutely agree with you um, to the core of my being. Um, there, are, you know, there are some circles within circles who do see the bigger picture. However, distressingly, I'm seeing more and more young men fall into this uh, how can I put it, a um, simple way of viewing things and interpreting Daily Mail trash, essentially. Um, but, you know, we just, we, we're there to do a job. But I, I agree with you. Um, what you've called out in the past, it's, it's pretty much common sense. You don't need to be super intelligent to see how the world works. But, you know, we can have a long debate about that another day. Well, uh, I'll tell you what, uh, Max, uh, you're right. It's a mixed bag because there was my experience that I've just... Uh, recounted. But there's also these paras that were uh, firing at, uh, at a, a firing range with Jeremy Corbyn's face as the target. Now, they've been dealt with uh, perhaps not entirely uh, in the way that they should have been, but they have been dealt with. A couple of them have been you. demoted. Uh, so there's that. There's those squaddies posing for pictures with uh, the pound shop uh, uh, little uh, uh, would-be tyrant Tommy Robinson very ugly picture. Uh, we've had uh, pictures of soldiers holding up uh, uh, Ulster loyalist uh, insignia and so on. We've had the collusion of sections of the British military, the Glenan gang uh, issue, a friend of mine, uh, Sean Murray, made a great, uh, a great uh, film, Unquiet Graves, talking about collusion. All I'm saying, and, and perhaps this is paradoxical, you're in the army and I'm not, uh, I'm saying it's, it's a mixed bag. There are many soldiers, many, uh, and in the officer class, I now know uh, personally, uh, who 
don't want to go into needless, reckless, pointless and utterly counterproductive wars. And that encouraged me quite a bit, Max. Yeah, no, I, I, absolutely, George. One thing I would say is, although we're engaging all these wars abroad um, for resources, let's, for argument's sake, say, at least in the past when the world empire, wealth almost traveled down with the industrial age. But at the moment, when we do wage war, it only benefits a very small segment of society and not the greater population. So personally, I don't agree with a lot of the actions we do, but I'm here for a job and that's what I'm being paid for. So, Okay, yeah, uh, here's yeah. a tip for you, uh, Max, in saying goodnight. Uh, there's a wonderful new BBC series called The Last Post, uh, which is uh, a, a double entendre because the last post is, of course, played over the coffins uh, of uh, soldiers uh, uh, who have uh, fallen in battle. Uh, but also, uh, Aden, set in Aden in 1965, when the Beatles were top of the charts, it's recent, 65, Britain was occupying the port of Aden, which it called, yeah, Adam, right. uh, Southern Arabia at the Aden. time. The word Yemen was not mm -hmm. used. Uh, and, of course, the people of Yemen uh, were beginning to rise up and say, actually, we don't want you here. Uh, you've come from a long way off. And the uh, plight of the soldiers trapped in Aden between the resistance of the Yemeni people and the idiocy of their officers and the politicians who kept them there uh, is a very, very interesting. So take a look at it. You'll thank me. And thank you, Max for uh, that call. Chris from Colchester is up next. Go ahead, Chris. Hi, George. Um, yeah, yeah um, I remember a couple of years ago or, or so, you attacked um, Gary Lineker for saying that Tony Blair, um, for praising Tony Blair, basically saying despite his, um, despite Iraq, he, uh, he was good on Brexit. Well, that seems to be similar to what you were saying about Bernie Sanders. Whereas, you know, despite the couple of million people he's helped kill, um, he might promise uh, free college to people. Um, and that includes the whole world now, because he stuck his hand up during the debate the other day saying he'd support free health care for, for illegal immigrants. Uh, are you against free health care for illegal immigrants? Definitely. That's complete insanity. You think, I mean, yeah, you think an illegal... An illegal immigrant run over by a truck should be left to die at the side of the road? No, I'm just, that's free healthcare plan. It, it, it's complete insanity, and it, it, he's just lost any chance of winning an election now. And Trump will eat him alive. Well, yeah, and, uh, before I ask Adam to comment, I'm just trying to ascertain you say that healthcare for illegal immigrants uh, is entirely wrong, and I'm saying. So you leave them to die at the side of the road? Is that what you're endorsing? No, no, I'm not endorsing that. They shouldn't be in the country anyway. No, but no, I, accept that, accept that. But they are in the country and they've just been run down by a truck and they don't have well, any course. medical insurance. No, of course, thank you, Tilly. Of course I'd want them to be treated. I'm not evil. I'm not like Bernie Sanders, who's, who supported uh, the sanctions on Iraq, even after hundreds of thousands of people have been killed. Yeah, no, I agree with and you on then, that one. I agree. Yeah, well, that's what I'm saying. Well, uh, what I'm saying is, I think Bernie Sanders is the only candidate who can win the nomination and win the presidency with politics anywhere near mine, Adam. 
Well, I think, as I've said before, that Donald Trump is going to win, and I think he's going to win quite comfortably. And I think that the interesting thing is Trump was perceived by the mainstream media, by the Democrats, and by quite a few, some would say the majority of frontline Washington veteran Republicans in 2016. Since then, I think there's been a backlash. Because Trump was criticized so strongly on that issue, people who inherently distrust the media, who inherently distrust the old God are saying Trump's position actually isn't quite as extreme as we were led to believe. And the Democrats, by taking a fairly extreme position on the other end, rather than trying to say we're the moderates and he's extreme, I think that a lot of people now are drifting towards Trump's positions uh, on that issue. Uh, as for Tony Blair and someone getting run over in Mexico, I don't really know what the point of that was. But all right, but, that's uh, my electoral all right, point. Let of me view. ask you pointedly. Uh, which candidate should the Democrats pick to fight Donald Trump? Objectively. Well, I think Andrew Yang, and the reason I'm saying that isn't only because I quite like his policies and I quite like him that much more as a human being, but I think that with Yang, he's gone out of his way to say this political sectarianism, this identitarianism, this idea of phrasing complex and macroeconomic issues in left-right skullduggery, we need to throw that out the window of his many catchy slogans. One of them that I think is the most endearing is not left not right forward. If anything could be Trump, it would be that. But of course, he's not going to get picked, and Trump, I think, is going to march to victory. Last word to you, Cola. Uh, yes, well, Yang's the second best behind Polk, but the few seconds he did have the other day on the debate page, he used it to find that the mouth about Russia pushing Russia today. So anyone who does that is just is a joke, I think. And uh, Tulsi Gabbard is the most uh, anti-war candidate and that's the most important thing for the world, U.S. foreign policy. Yeah, unfortunately, it's not the world that's voting, it's the <laughs> Americans. But thanks very much for that call. Uh, while I'm waiting for the next call, uh, let me just tell you that we got tweets and callers tonight from Nigeria, Wales, Scotland, Ireland, Egypt, Norway, the United States, the UAE, Canada, Gibraltar, Sweden, Tanzania, Australia, and France. That is Blimey. truly extraordinary, the global experience, the global open university of the airways. Do I have another caller? Let me hear from them. Yes, caller? Okay, uh, we'll uh, come back to, yeah, yeah, they're there. Go ahead, caller. Yes, someone from Scotland, go ahead. Hi, George. Yes, hi. I wanted to ask Adam, whether we think that if we leave the EU without a deal, that the financial establishment will carry out their to leave Britain and therefore bankrupt us. Adam? Well, it was a bit of a bad line, but yeah. I, I, I'm led to understand that it's about will the financial system will, will we collapse? go bankrupt yeah. without a deal? Well, absolutely not. The idea that Britain has only survived and can only survive in this prison. I mean, look at Singapore. It's such a it's a, it's it's smaller than London. It's a city state, and the entire world brings its financial services there. The EU is regulating itself to death while still kicking the working class and the downtrodden in the head. 
it's giving people the worst of both worlds. I really hate to quote this, not least because I don't even like the song, but things can only get better. But to make it a bit Gary-eyes, that's because they couldn't get much worse. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, it is a, a commonplace amongst uh, commentators and uh, part of the political class that somehow, you know, uh, we, we'd be still living in the woods and painting our faces blue if it weren't for the uh, uh, civilizers of the European Union. Let's take a call from Virginia, the state of Virginia in the United States. Rashid, go ahead. Hi, Adam. Hi, George. How are you? Hi there. By the grace of God, we're good. Lovely to hear from you there. Yeah, I just wanted to, uh, to bring up the fact that over the last multiple election cycles in the United States, going back to uh, the 60s, you could say, that both the Republican Party and the Democratic Party uh, primaries are basically rigged and have been rigged. The, in the most recent case, uh, Donald Trump was an anachronism. It wasn't supposed to happen. Their rigging tricks didn't work. And in the case of the Democratic Party, the rigging process was in full flower. So that's how they eliminated Mr. Bernie Sanders. Yeah, but Rashid, the, the hole in your argument uh, is, isn't it, Adam, that Donald Trump won uh, the nomination? Indeed. I mean, I remember well, Rashid, that George uh, Bush's brother, uh, Jeb Bush, all the smart money was on him. <laughs> Where is he now? <laughs> is he still around even? I mean, the, Donald Trump could not possibly win the Republican primary, they said, but he did. Well, I know that our listeners in Pakistan will know that Imran Khan, who had never previously held government offices, uh, he destroyed the Zardari and Sharif dynasties in one foul swoop, and I believe that's going to be permanent. And look at what Trump did in America. He destroyed the Clinton and the Bush dynasty in one foul swoop. So even though we can say the system's corrupted, and I think that it's rigged more because of a psychological infection than, you know, someone stuffing ballots or someone, you know, behaving like an Egyptian electoral commissioner where there's only one choice and they still have to rig it uh, in the guy's favor. Obviously, the, the primary in 2016 for Hillary, that was rigged, we all know, thanks to Julian Assange, uh, that it was uh, going to be Bernie, but Hillary had her little gremlins do what they needed to do. So it was Hillary's gremlins, not the Kremlin, uh, and you can take that one to the bank. Uh, but every now and then, people will slip through. And I think in this age of multi-media, uh, social media, that it's going to get harder and harder for these people to keep telling the lies and for the ordinary people to believe it. But I actually have a question for Rashid. Why is it that you're an American, I can hear you crystal clear and stereophonic sound, but our friend in Scotland was uh, breaking up as though he was on an old <laughs> Morris code? Not sure Rashid can answer that. Last word to you, Rashid. <laughs> well, um, you know, I'm, I'm grateful for your opinions. With regards to the crystal clarity, there's a terrible feedback in my call right now. No, it's good. We're but all having hearing said it very that, well. Having said that, I can say to you that uh, in the two cycles that Ron Paul was involved with, the establishment went out of their way to crush his insurgency. Yeah. Maybe they took it uh, seriously, and they didn't take Mr. Trump seriously. 
And that's what caught them with their well, pants uh, down. I'll tell you what, and that's what I'll tell you what, Rashid, the, there's a great Scottish actor, the late Duncan McRae, who says, We didn't ken, Lord, we didn't ken. And the Lord answers, Well, you can knew. So they know now that Donald Trump is a thing. They know that he defeated the Clinton and Bush dynasties. And I suspect they know, as Adam has predicted, that unless the Democrats pick somebody really special, they are going to lose to him uh, again. Adam, thanks for joining us as usual tonight. Lots of questions to you. If you get the chance to answer any on social media, I'd be grateful just to keep the public happy uh, because uh, we're not in, uh, in fact going to be able to squeeze, even if you're on every week, as I hope you will be, we're not going to be able to answer all the questions that come your way because people know you're a very, very smart guy. As I say, the smartest man in England. Well, it's been marvellous for me. I hope it was for you. It's been the College of Knowledge, the Open University of the Airwaves. It's been the mother of all talk shows. And if you enjoyed it as much as I did, tell somebody about it. Bring me along another viewer, another listener next week.